Hey, thanks, Pastor Davey. It really is such a joy to be here. And, uh, and I think that's a great setup, right? Uh, Pastor Davey is a preacher. So when, when this mic is in his hands, the Spirit of God is moving in such a powerful way that he can't help but say the things that are coming out of his mouth. So uh, I'm bummed. You are all bummed that you don't get to hear from him today. So I'm going to try to do it justice. So, you know, give me some grace. That's my, I got a handicap uh, being new and um, coming in uh, really like a pinch hitter almost. I got, when we were texting maybe, it was this week sometime, maybe Wednesday or Thursday, um, just thinking through who could come and share with, uh, with the campus here. So it really is an honor to be here. This is actually my first weekend here at the St. Paul campus. And yeah, <laughs> you, uh, you know this, you have an incredible thing happening here. I, 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 Davey said this, so I serve as our connections director, which means uh, I serve on a team we call our central team with a multi-site church campuses all over the Twin Cities here. There's a few of us that have kind of the honor of um, helping every one of our campuses in key areas. So uh, the area that I get to help with is called connections, which is all the things we do with small groups and uh, serving teams, our local outreach, all that stuff. So now, now you kind of have a, a name and a face uh, to uh, maybe the complaints you need to send in. So you're like, that's the guy I need to talk to about why this thing isn't as good as I thought. But I say that in jest, knowing that there's also a grain of truth in that. Uh, We all can improve. We all can get better. And feedback and opportunities for you to have candid opportunities to share some things that were great and maybe not so good about your experience at our church is... Uh, currency to us in a good way. Uh, we need that to be able to pivot our strategy to make things better. So uh, if you would love to stop me afterwards, we could talk more about all the connections, things happening at the church. I'd be honored and glad to do so. And then part of my role too is to help when we have new campuses that are launching. So I remember when uh, Pastor Rob uh, just felt this stirring that a River Valley church needed to be here in the St. Paul area, particularly in the city. Um, And so we were praying about what that could look like. Is there a facility? Is there a place that God is calling us to? And I remember walking through these hallways here um, months ago, just praying, thinking about, God, what could you be doing? What could you be up to to have uh, a life-giving church here in a community that really needs it? And so even though I wasn't, uh, this is my first Sunday here in terms of worshiping with you, know that I've seen the vision for what this place could be. Uh, Know that I've seen our pastors walk through these halls praying about what God could do. And as I look at it, I look at the people that God's assembled here, it's right up, right up where we were dreaming, right what we were thinking it could be like. And um, I, my wife and I go to our Minneapolis campus. We live in South Minneapolis, so that's the campus that we're normally at. And one of the things that is really encouraging to me about what's happening here is the reflection that each of you bring as a collective group about what's all going to come to us in heaven. Uh, heaven paints a picture of diversity. Every tribe, language, people, and nation are going to be there. And I'm so glad that we have a campus that reflects that in such a powerful way. And I want you to know that I don't think that's an accident um, because it's the heart of your pastor. Uh, Pastor Davey is someone that regardless of your skin color, your income bracket, what what you dress like, he knows that Jesus needs to be in your life. And he's not going to discriminate in any way. Jesus doesn't discriminate in any way. So I'm so glad that we have a campus. All of our campuses reflect that, but this one does it to a beautiful, beautiful degree. Um, And so I appreciate the welcome. I appreciate just how much you reflect the coming glory that we're all going to see in heaven. 
So um, a little bit about me. So my um, uh, my story, well, I'll get to my story. You should probably know a bit about my family. So we live in South Minneapolis. I've been married for seven years uh, to Annie, and we have three children. Um, we just added our third, uh, like, 32 days ago. So she's just over a month old. Uh, her name's Ivy Grace. But we have two other boys. We have Laker. He's our eldest. Uh, he's almost four years old. And uh, you, hear, you hear the name Laker, and you're like, that, he's, he must be like a big basketball fan, which uh, is kind of true. Like, I like basketball, but we didn't name him for the Los Angeles Lakers or Kobe Bryant or something like that. Um, we named him because he's from the land of 10,000 lakes. You, you, some of you may know this, but like the Los Angeles Lakers started in Minneapolis. So they were the Minneapolis Lakers, which makes a whole ton of, ton of sense. And then they moved to Los Angeles, which makes no sense. But uh, that is why uh, they are the Lakers. And that's why we gave him this, the name Laker, because we wanted to give him a shout out to his Minnesota roots. Then we had Tate. Tate's our middle baby now. It's an adjustment for Tate to go from the baby to the middle child. Um, it really is. I, I, there's two kids in my in the family I grew up in. My sister and I. So we never had the middle kind of kid to to like think about or like kind of see the experience of. Whereas I'm seeing it for the first hand, and it, it's it's like traumatic. They're like, you know, they're used to being held and getting what they want. All of a sudden, Ivy is now the center of attention, and uh, and now Tate Tate was never a daddy's boy, but now he is. So I'm kind of glad that he finally has me to hang out with. But um, we when we're trying to name Tate, my wife. Uh, just like the name Tate, and I, I was I, I love the name Laker. I was I was proud that I was able to come up with a name that was kind of cool, but not weird, but had a meaning. You know, like <laughs> try to find the middle ground there. And um, and so I was like, I want to keep this Minnesota theme going. Like, let's try to find a name for our second son that still kind of keeps this story ahead. And I was throwing out some pretty odd names like Guthrie and Calhoun, and you know, just trying to think like something to like give him a Minnesota theme. And my wife was adamant. She was like, no, like none of those names, they don't sound good. Like Tate, I love Tate. Uh, we want to call him that. So we're debating this like when she's in the delivery room. Like I'm, I'm in my camp, she's in hers. And then how many know if, if you're a dad and if you've been in the delivery room with your wife, once you see someone give birth, you're like, whatever you want to name it, you know, it's, you win. And so Tate is his name. But r- retroactively, retroactively, I was like, you know, I can still get a Minnesota theme out of this. And some of you may know where I'm going here, but if you've grown up in Minnesota, you know that it's like our state food is the tater tot hot dish. <laughs> and so I call him tater all the time just to keep, like, I kind of won that, that he has some Minnesota in him. Um, but, you know, it's kind of, it may be a bit ironic, like, wh- why is this kid trying, or why am I trying to have all these Minnesota-themed names? Because I'm not even from here. Uh, I actually grew up in a country called South Africa, which is appropriately named. It's on the African continent. It's the most southern country on the continent. And But then you, some of you are looking at me, and you know a bit about world countries, and you're like, but he doesn't look African, and that's true. Um, <laughs> my ethnicity is Indian. So my ancestors come from the Indian subcontinent, and it was the 1860s or so when the first Indians were brought over to South Africa by colonizers, and we were brought to work sugarcane fields. So that was kind of the job as indentured servants. So it's not the prettiest of histories by any means at all, but um, the Indian population in South Africa began to grow. And right now, today, the largest populations of people that have an Indian ethnicity that live outside of India uh, is in Africa. Not just in Africa, in South Africa. 
and not just in South Africa, but in the town that I grew up in. So I grew up in this really interesting setting where everywhere I went, everywhere, uh, everywhere I looked, people looked like me. And my dad was someone that was cut from a pretty different cloth, uh, just with respect to family and friends, neighborhood, all that stuff. And he was, man, he was enamored with America. He just loved it. And uh, part of the reason that he loved it was because he was a, a vocalist, a singer. And he would go in bars and he would sing all these like classic rock uh, uh, songs. And so it just got him really interested in the United States, in America, pop culture, all of that. And he had this dream. He was like, you know, I think we should, we should go. We should go to America, see what it's like. And when I was nine years old, we did exactly that. Uh, my mom and dad sold everything they had. And we had 11 suitcases, and we boarded a plane in Johannesburg, which is kind of the, the biggest city in South Africa, went to London, and then transferred from London to Minneapolis. And so we came in June of 1996. So it's been more than 25 years now that we came to Minneapolis. And we came in June. Now in Africa, they have year-round school. So we landed in June, and I'm thinking, all right, what school do I have to go to? And they're like, you don't have school. And I was like, what do you mean? I was like, they're on break. The longest break we ever had, I think, in a South African school was like two weeks. And I was like, okay, that's typical. Breaks happen. How long is the break? Like, you don't go back till September. I'm like, I like America. (laughs) This place is really cool. And uh, by the way, I also used to have an accent. You know, you meet people from different countries and they have these great accents and they sound smarter. And I wish I still had my South African accent. Has anyone ever seen, what's that movie, uh, Blood Diamond? And like Leonardo DiCaprio's in it. He does a pretty good South African accent. So I'm kind of bummed I don't have it anymore. I have a little bit, my, but it's more neutral. I don't even think I have a Minnesota, or maybe it came out there, a Minnesota <laughs> accent. But um, <laughs> so that's where we came. We came to Minneapolis. And, you know, people will always ask me, they're like, what do you miss most? What do you remember most about living in South Africa? And as a nine-year-old kid, there's a fair bit that I remember. And, and how many know this? Like, normally the answer to both those questions is the same thing. You know, what do you remember? What do you miss? Normally you can answer them the same way. And sure, there's food and there's um, places and there's like hobbies that we would do. But um, normally, if someone were to ask you that question, if you've moved, or if you've had a transition in your life, uh, normally... The thing you miss most, or the thing you remember most, is a person. And that person for me was my grandmother. She was the first Christian in our family, uh, converted by door-to-door missionaries. So people walk in, door-to-door, knock in, asking, do you know Jesus? Do you want to receive Jesus? And she said yes. And the cool thing, well, it's kind of cool. I thought of it as cool. Now that I live in the States, maybe it's not as great. But cool thing in Africa is that it's multi-generational homes. So when my mom married my dad, she just moved into the house where grandma was, which now I'm thinking about that. I'm like, I'm so glad we don't do that here. Uh, not, not in a negative way. It's just you want your space. But anyway, uh, grandma was like the spiritual titan in our home. She just was. She would make sure that we got up early, that we were going to church, that we would pray before bed. That's just who she was. And when we came to the United States, um, communication was hard. Uh, it was expensive to make long-distance calls. There was no FaceTime. There was no Google calls. There was not even instant messaging in text messaging, um, at least that we had access to. So here's what we would do to communicate with grandma. We would write letters. 
And so I remember as a nine-year-old kid writing letters to grandma and it's, you know, like saying, hey, like we made it. I'm, I'm sure you knew that, but we're here and the food here is different. The people like hamburgers, you know, and like just trying to give her a sense of like what it was like. And then, you know, you make a little craft or you draw a picture or something. And as a nine-year-old kid, you, you don't even realize this, but then the letters got to get from here to there. And, you know, I give it to my mom or my dad and be like, mom, can you or dad, can you make sure this gets there? And then they had to probably write the address in a certain way and probably put like five stamps on it to get it all the way to another continent. And, and how many know this? Like when you write a letter, there's always the space in between when the letter was written and when it was received. And then also from when it was received to when it was replied back. And that would be months. You know, and as a nine-year-old kid, you don't really realize that. It's like, okay, you write the letter, I send it on a Tuesday, right? I gave it to mom, and I'm like, okay, here it is. Here's my craft. Here's everything I want to say. Can you make sure it gets there? And she's like, yes, I'll make sure I, it gets there. Then you ask her the next day, did you send it? Yes, I sent it. Then you ask her the next day, okay, do we have something back? <laughs> and she's like, well, no, it's got to travel thousands of miles in the other direction, and then grandma has to open it, and she has to read it, and then she has to write something down, and send it back. It could be weeks, it could be a month before you hear back from her. Now, obviously, we could call and things like that, but how many, how many know every time I would call grandma, I'd be like, did you get the letter? You know, did you get it? Have you read it yet? And so that was what life was like in the early years when we came to the United States. And I set all that up to, to, we're starting a series here at River Valley Church this weekend. Pastor Rob is going to continue it next week and moving forward. It's called Philippians for You. And we're going to look at a letter. Really, that's what we're doing. We're looking at a letter that Paul wrote to a church that he helped start in a place called Philippi. And what's crazy about letters is that they're all over the Bible. If you look at the New Testament in particular, 21 out of the 27 books, and books is probably not the best term here, but 21 of the 27 pieces of literature, if you will, that are in the New Testament are letters, correspondence. Someone writing to someone else, giving them an encouragement or some instruction or helping them navigate things that they're walking through. And so as we start this series, that's what we're going to do. For the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at one of those letters, Philippians, and we're going to ask ourselves the question, what is God saying to us today? Even though he said it back then to a group of people that were living in a very unique time and place, the application and the relevance is still crystal clear. For you and me, because the Spirit is at work. The same Spirit at work in the Philippian church, He's at work here at River Valley Church, St. Paul campus, and we're going to open ourselves up to that Spirit work as we read together. So uh, I just want to set up a little bit of context here. Uh, Paul helped uh, found this church in Philippi. Uh, you can read about it in the book of Acts, chapter 16. And uh, the first part of Paul's life as a missionary, if you will, was he was on the eastern side of the world, in the Middle East, in what is now modern-day Turkey. He, that's kind of his stomping grounds. And you know, Paul's life was radically changed by Jesus, and he just felt like, my mission, my call in life is to tell as many people I can about him, no matter who they are. No matter who they are, no matter what they look like, no matter what they do, no matter what religion they follow, everyone needs an opportunity to hear the saving message of Jesus Christ. And so he committed his life to that. And Acts 16 shows a turning point in the story in terms of location or setting. 
The whole part of Paul's life up until this point, he was on the eastern side of the world. And then he gets this vision from the Holy Spirit. And the vision says, there's more. There's more people. And they're on the other side of the world. They're on, they're on the western side of the world. They're in Europe. And so Paul gets this vision and he wakes up from a dream and he's like, our time now for now is done on the east and we got to go west. We actually got to get to Rome. If we can get to the center of the known world, there's no stopping where the gospel could go. And the first city that he gets to on European soil is a place called Philippi. Now, Philippi has some really interesting history connected to it because it was the battleground for some key um, uh, conflicts as the Roman Empire was going eastward. So when the, when the Romans got to Philippi, some of the most famous battles in their history happened right there. And so as a result, uh, all these army vets in the Roman Empire, after they were done serving and done uh, with their conquest, uh, a whole lot of them actually settled in Philippi. They said, if we're going to call any place home, let's go to the place where those famous battles were. And so Rome, the, this place called Philippi, had tons of patriotism in it. They loved Rome. They loved Caesar. They loved the military. That was the kind of city that Paul went to. And Acts records the two people that said yes to Jesus. There were many more after that. But the first two people to say yes to Jesus couldn't come from more different backgrounds. First one was a lady named Lydia. And she's like the modern-day equivalent of uh, a, a designer that sells clothing to the richest people in the world. Because uh, it says that she was a dealer of purple cloth. And purple was a color of royalty. And so we can kind of probably guess, make a really good guess from that, that what she did was she was designing clothing and she was designing fashion for the m most hip people that lived at that time. I was asking my wife this morning, because I'm not very good with fashion. She dressed me today. So if I look anything, you know, somewhat fashionable, it's because of her. And I was like, can you tell me, like, I need to share, like, a person's name. Like, who would be the modern-day equivalent of Lydia? And she, and first thing she said, it's like, Coco Chanel. And I was like, okay, I don't know who that is, but I will say that. Um, so basically, the first convert, or the first person to say yes to Jesus in this city is a fashion designer like Coco Chanel. Now, from I think she's no longer alive. I think she's passed. But obviously, her name still carries. Her impact still carries. And in the same way, Lydia carried that kind of influence in the city. Then, uh, because of this Jesus thing happening, Paul gets in trouble. And he gets thrown in jail. They're like, we don't, we don't like what this guy's doing. We don't like what he's bringing. So lock him away. So they throw these chains at him. They throw him in a jail. And then that evening, the chains just break off. The Holy Spirit's moving in a powerful way. And this jailer, whose job is to watch Paul to make sure he doesn't escape, realizes that it's over for him. The one thing that he's supposed to do, all of a sudden he can't ensure is going to happen, Paul's free. And the jailer's about to take his own life. And Paul stops him and he says, I know what you need. You need hope. You need a future. You need a way out. And so he tells him about Jesus right then and there, and he accepts him. He decides to follow and model his life after Jesus. And here's what I want you to know about Lydia and this jailer. It couldn't be two more different people. The jailer, any jailer, was, came from the lowest socioeconomic status in that time. Basically was, if you didn't have a job or didn't know what to do, you could go to a prison and say, hey, I'll do anything. I just need something. And they're like, great, 
see these people over here? They're chained up. Make sure they don't get away. And the jailer's like, chained up? That seems pretty easy. I guess I'll just watch. So it was an easy job for the most part, but it was a hard job. Didn't pay a lot. If you asked for that job, you were probably in a hard spot. But all of a sudden, the most influential fashion designer in the city and a random person that couldn't find a job and just needed to get by, those are the two people that decide to start the church in Philippi. Two people from the most different backgrounds, different stories you could ever imagine. So Paul sets up this church and he's like, I got to keep going west. That's my call. And these people say to him, you can't go alone. You can't go without something. And so they give him money and resource and they bless him on his way. And he goes and continues to fulfill his mission. And then word travels back that Paul's in prison. He got in trouble again. But this time he's in prison in Rome. He's in Caesar's prison under house arrest. And the Philippian church, which has grown, obviously, by this time, they're like, That's, Paul changed our entire life. He changed our entire city. We're going to do something about it. So they probably gathered together, and they gave some more money, and they sent someone. They maybe asked, like, hey, anyone want to travel to Rome? 800-mile trek. And this guy named Epaphroditus probably raised his hand, or they just picked him, one of the two. I think he raised his hand. And he said, I'll do it. Now, in the ancient world, you wouldn't travel alone. You'd travel in groups because it wasn't that safe. And so a group of people from the Philippian church made the trek onward to Rome. They gave him some money, and in all likelihood, they also probably had a letter from them to Paul. So Epaphroditus and his group, they make it to Rome. They get to Paul, and all of a sudden, Epaphroditus gets deathly sick. And part of the group goes back to Philippi to report the news. Hey, we made it. The journey was not easy. In fact, our brother Epaphroditus, like, I don't know if he's going to make it. And I want you to imagine the Philippian church hearing that news. They're probably worried. They're probably concerned. They're probably doubting, should we ever have done this? They may even have got to bickering. Well, whose idea was it to send him? It was just too far a journey. And how much money did we send? You know, uh, my wife and I, we, uh, we debate that all the time. Uh, and how much money did you spend? And how much money did you give? I'm the saver in the house. And she's not, let's put it that way. So we have that conversation all the time. So I think I can relate with the Philippians where they're probably like, it just does not go the way we thought we would go. Maybe we shouldn't have done that. And remember, this is 800 miles one way. So 1,600 miles both ways. It'd be months before they'd hear anything back from Paul, if at all. And then it happened. Epaphroditus comes back, and he's got a letter in his hand from the guy that they adore and love, the guy that told them the good news about Jesus. And so when we read, really the first sentence is all we're going to do today. When we read the first sentence from this letter, I want you to locate yourself with that posture. Put yourself in that setting. Here's this guy that radically transformed your life. He's in prison. You care about him. You send someone to help him. And then it turns south. And you just wonder for months, should we have done it? Is he okay? Will, ever, will things ever turn around? This was just like me getting letters from my grandmother, right? You'd just be so excited 
when I'd ask my mom the question, like, did we get a letter? And when she would say yes, it would change my day. Because you'd just open it and you'd read it and you'd get all this encouragement and excitement from the fact that the circle completed. From writing to receiving, from receiving to responding, that's what we're seeing in Philippians. So Philippians 1, we're reading the first six verses. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you, constantly praying with joy in every one of my prayers for all of you because of your sharing in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm confident of this, that the one who began a good work among you will bring it to completion by the day of Christ Jesus. You know, reading this whole letter would take about 15 minutes. And so we're just getting a glimpse here. And ancient letters had a form. You would, just like how when we write letters, we have a form to it. You know, dear so-and-so, how are you? Here's what I want to say. Sincerely so-and-so, right? That's how we write letters. Ancient people wrote very similar letters. They'd start with, here's who I am. Here's who I'm sending it to. Here's a nice little prayer or blessing. And then let me say what I want to say. In all Paul's letters that we have, the longest prayer and blessing, we're not even done with it. We only read the first sentence of it. The longest prayer and blessing that he writes goes to the Philippian church. Man, he loved these people. Uh, If you read the book of Galatians, it's kind of sad, he skips the prayer entirely. (laughs) He's, you know, he just, he's like, Paul to Galatia, you guys suck, essentially is what he says. (laughs) So uh, he is not happy with them. And you can catch that, right? When you see, when you know that about ancient letters, it's like, it brings this whole new light. These people, these people in Philippi, he would give his life for these guys. He loved them so much. And how many know that all of us need those kinds of people in our lives? We just need people in our corner, people that are willing to spur us on, to help us catch the future that God has for us. And that's why my grandmother and I have such a, had such a good relationship is because she was that person for me. You know, she sent our family forward to the United States. She didn't hold us back. She knew that there was a future for us. And she said, go take it and see what God can do. And I think, you know, one of the things that's really um, important for us to see about the Philippian church, and this is kind of my main point here, is it's in verse six, where Paul says, I'm confident of this, that the good work God has started in you or among you, he's going to finish it. And I think the reason that he put that in there was because maybe Epaphroditus gave him some insight or maybe his own intuition saw it, but he probably, and months are passing here, so, and he knew with all that time, a lot of doubt started creeping in, a lot of worry, a lot of concern, and they were probably at a point as a church where they needed a lift. They needed someone to say, hey, the good things that are happening in and among you, it's not done. God will finish the things that he started. And I think what maybe highlights why it got so hard for the Philippian church is because there was a lot of difference there. I mean, think about how it started. A fashion designer and a jailer. And you put those two people in a room and say, hey, you're both following Jesus together, so let's, let's continue to grow the family of God. That's a lot of difference, trying to sit together pursuing God. And, and maybe you felt that, maybe you've asked that question, because I think they were asking, like, can we really still keep this thing together? Can it really work? Maybe you've asked that in your family. Maybe your family just seems way too different. 
Maybe you've asked that in your workplace. Maybe the people you connect with and you have to work alongside, like, they're just too different. Maybe, maybe you feel that way in school if you're in class and you're trying to do a group project and you're working with people that are so different than you. And maybe it just creeps into your mind, like, can, this, can we keep it together? Can we really make it work? You know, uh, my wife and I moved to South Minneapolis and we, um, we decided to do a fixer-upper, which, you know, you watch it on television, and it's not the same when you try to do it in real life. You know, they, they like, it, it looks like what happens in hours, it takes you days, months. You're watching YouTube videos trying to figure it out, and it does not work. And, and, then, and then you have very different stylistic opinions. So my wife would be like, you know, we should do this. And I'd be like, no, I think we should go in this direction. And then she would like go on Instagram and she'd put this poll up. You know, you know, they do this where you can like, is it this or this? And then all these people would be against me. They'd be like, no, why in the world would you ever, you know, do it that color? Why would you put that there? And so my wife made a lot of democratic decisions, I guess, using Instagram. But... Uh, and I'm working through that process with her and we're just wondering, like, can we do this? Like, maybe we just have two different visions of what this thing could be. And it looks good. I mean, it, it may look a little odd at places because I, I try to win there and she tried to win there, but we're living in it and it's fine. Um, and so, you know, I think what Philippians 1.6 is, it's a promise to my wife and I, it's a promise to the Philippian church, it's a promise to any of us that have asked the question, despite all the differences, in the midst of all the differences, can this really work? I think Philippians 1.6 is God's answer saying, yeah, it really can. And can I tell you something about how it's going to work? It's not going to be a natural from your own abilities and power kind of work. Nope. Paul calls it a good work. And a good work necessitates, it demands, it needs a good God. It does. Because a good work isn't an easy work. It's not a small work. It's not a momentary work. A good work can change the world. A good work can last a lifetime. A good work can alter history. And church, I want to tell you this. God wants to do a good work in and among us today. And here's what that good work is. It's that no matter how much we may get annoyed or frustrated or skeptical or flustered or jealous with people that have more than we do or vote differently than we do or think or act or dress differently than we do, despite all of that stuff, the good work that God is doing is that the world is going to look at us as an example, that despite all those differences, it can be done. We can move forward. We can pursue all that God has for us. We can actually live up to what Jesus calls his followers to do in Matthew 5. Matthew 5 is the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' most famous sermon. And he says these words, which seem crazy. This is Jesus speaking. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, or if you only like those people who are like you, what reward will you get? 
Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And I'm sure as you heard that, you're probably asking the same thing or you're thinking the same thing I am. Jesus, why do you ask me to do something I could never do? And that's exactly his point. You could never do it, but God can. What Jesus describes here is the good work God wants to do in you and among us. You know, here's how another translation puts Philippians 1.6. For I'm confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And so you know how we do that? You know how we let that good work keep working in and through us? We got to love the hard people in our lives. We just do. Because we're preparing for heaven as we do that. Every tribe, language, people, and nation are going to meet us there. And so it's going to leave us with a very important question to consider. Where's that good work that God is doing right now in our church and in each of us? Because I don't want you to doubt this. There's a good work that started here, specifically at St. Paul campus. There just is. We're reflecting the future of heaven based on the amazing diversity that's collected in this room. People from every tribe, language, people, and nation. And if we're going to be the kinds of people that love our enemies, who embrace the mess, and who look forward to a future teeming with diversity, then the next step is we just got to allow God to do some good work among us. But maybe even a better way to say it is we got to allow God to do some work on us. And so I'm going to invite Jason to come up here. I'm going to pray in just a moment. And my prayer is this, that the Holy Spirit is going to bring to your heart and mind people that maybe you've left on the margins. Because for some reason, they're just too different. They make you too uncomfortable. They make you too frustrated or annoyed. You disagree with them too much. Maybe they've hurt you too much. You know, I talked about how I grew up in South Africa and, um, Some of you may know this in terms of its history, but something called apartheid was the law of the land for many, many years. And apartheid inspired essentially essentially Jim Crow, which kind of ensured that based on the color of your skin, you could or could not do certain things. And that was true for my family. And my grandmother was forcibly removed from her house because she was living in a neighborhood that she wasn't supposed to be in. grandmother passed away on her 93rd birthday this year. I had a chance to do her funeral. It was a pretty special time for me. But I think about her entering the heavenlies, and there's going to be people, part of her new life, that were formerly her enemies. They just are. We live in this broken world where, for some reason, the color of our skin, man, it, it brings hurt. It brings pain. And I think what Jesus is inviting us to do through Paul's words to a church a couple thousand years ago is to allow a good work to keep going in our hearts. Soften it so that we can see people as God sees them. And I just want to give you some vision here. What would it look like if we embraced this for our church and for our world? 
What if we actually shared generously with our friends, like the Philippians did with Paul? What if we had friendships and partnerships that anytime we prayed for them, we couldn't help think of them with joy? Kind of like how Paul thought about his friends in Philippi. And what if we truly trusted in this radical promise that the difficulties and the differences among us don't have to be the source of contention or discord or doubt or blame, but instead it's the hardships and the hard people that become the very reason how we see God at work among us today. That's the kind of church that we want to be. A church that can be like Jesus, full of grace and peace. A church marked by a good work. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we're so grateful that your presence is here. That you're bringing people together from every different walk of life. And we're here open-handed saying, God, we just want to pursue you. We want to see the coming kingdom in all of its glory. And God, I pray right now as your spirit works in and on our hearts, if there's anyone, anyone, God, that we've decided to leave on the margins that for some reason we've thought isn't eligible for your grace and truth, God, I pray that you would bring that to mind and give us an opportunity to show love to everyone, everywhere. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.